Hello, my name is Diana, and you're listening to the Latina Diana podcast. This podcast is about women empowerment, women sharing experiences, and women going around and just discussing their own traumas, their own battles, and their own stories. This is a space for us all to come together and connect. Stay tuned for the new episode. Hello, this is the Latina Diana podcast, and I am so excited today to welcome our guest, Mara San Martino. She is a licensed clinical social worker, and she is currently in California. I am just so honored to have a conversation with her, and I'm so fortunate enough to have you as the listeners listening in on this as well. Um, she's someone that I've been looking towards when it comes to navigating certain situations and conversations, especially as a Latina. So, Stick around, um, hear us out, and hopefully you learn something new. Enjoy. Buenos dias, how are you? I'm good. Sorry about the delay. Oh, no, it's okay. It happens. It's Monday, you know? (laughs) Definitely, definitely. (laughs) So nice to meet you. So nice to meet you too, Mara. I'm so glad you're able to do this. Honestly, it's been such a, a whirlwind trying to get a podcast going. And I was like, oh my gosh, she actually said she'd, like, she'd love to be on it. Oh, you're welcome. Yeah. How long have you been doing the podcast? Honestly, not very long. I think I started um, late last year. And, you know, a lot of things happened family-wise. I just, you know, shifted my time for a bit, but I'm slowly going back into it again, which has been really nice. Good, good. It's funny. I think this has been the year of innovation for a lot of us, so it's good. I think so too. Yeah. So, I mean, welcome to the podcast, Mara. I'd like to just start with you kind of just introducing yourself and telling the listeners a little bit more about yourself. Yeah, sure. Well, thank you again for having me. My name is Mara San Martino, and my pronouns are she and her. I'm a licensed clinical social worker here in the state of California. Um, and I've been a social worker now. Um, I just celebrated my 11th year of graduating from my master's. Um, but I've been in this field probably my whole life. <laughs> Thank you. Um, and I am the owner um, or part owner of a group practice here um, in California. Uh, and that has been my goal. Um, but yeah, I kind of do a lot of things. I'm a mom of two uh, under the age of five. <laughs> um, so yeah, so I'm pretty busy. That's amazing. You're, you're busy in all sorts of your aspects too. I mean, you started talking about your career, so we can go with that first, I guess. What led you to your path that you are in now? What led you to become a licensed clinical social worker? Yeah, great question. I think um, as I've been reflecting more and more of my career, um, I kind of to be honest, I think we all fall into it, especially as first generation um, children of immigrants. Um, you know, social work is very social justice oriented. It has a lot of things that we as a culture experience as a Latinx culture, right? So like, mm-hmm. standing up for each other, very collective. And so um, from a very early age, I was introduced to social justice uh, through my family. Um, and so that's been kind of the foundation I really didn't know what a social worker was um, until an aunt of mine um, became a licensed clinical social worker. Um, She's an aunt by marriage. Um, And so she was like, hey, like, this would be a great field for you to get into. Like, um, and so, yeah, so I started my career off uh, going to UC Davis. Um, I'm originally from Los Angeles, and then I moved out for the LA area, I should say. Uh, and yeah, got my undergrad in sociology. Um, I took two years off after that and then uh, went back and got my master's. That's amazing. What, um, how was that navigating that too? Because you said you come from immigrant families. So like, how was it navigating, especially during that time, right? Um, figuring out what college is actually about and like how to really do it. Because I feel like it's not very, it's not talked about, right? And it's one of those right. things that like my parents, at least they were like, like, let's go to CC. So I guess Mm -hmm. just, how was that for you? Yeah, I do need to point out, I come from a very privileged family. I do need, even though they aren't immigrants, all of my aunts and uncles, my mom, all were fortunate enough to go to college in Nicaragua. Um, So they knew the importance of education from the get-go. 
However, obviously going to college in Nicaragua compared to going to college in the United States is very different. Um, so there was still kind of this, like, you're going to need to go to college, um, but it really was like, you're going to stay close to home, right? Like, you're not going to go far away. However, I did, um, I was, I always had support from my family and um, I applied all over the state of California um, from San Diego up to Davis. Um, I am the oldest of 20 grandchildren. Um, so I was the first one to leave home um, to go to college. Um, so that was kind of tough. I think the biggest transition was the culture shock. Um, obviously growing up in a suburb of LA where, or just LA in general, um, you know, everything's very different. And then you move up to Northern California <laughs> and I, it was, it was definitely a, an adjustment. <laughs> yeah, I bet. Cause yeah. Um, I feel like even I went through that, even coming from, you know, SoCal and moving up to Seattle, mm -hmm. huge game changer. I feel like I remember going into my first job here and oh my goodness, you're so tanned. And I'm like, I'm not tanned. I was, it was like, this is my skin color, you know? And mm -hmm. like, it's something that people don't really think about sometimes, but, um, I guess segueing into that, how was it navigating as a woman of color in college? And like, even now through your career path too. Yeah, I think it's been a struggle to even identify as a woman of color because, I mean, I, I mean I'm going to be 38. So I think, you know, for us, for those of us that grew up mainly in the 80s and 90s, we didn't have this kind of revolutionary wave as we're having it now, right? Um, right. Especially in California, there was a lot of anti-immigrant sentiment. And so also coming from a Central American family. And as we know, the Latinx community is so diverse, even within our community, there is discrimination and prejudice. And so growing up, there was a lot of, you're not this, you're that type of conversation, mm -hmm. right? Um, no eres mexicana, eres nicaragüense, right? So there was never this push to identify as American. It was very nationalistic. And so moving up to um, Davis, which at the time was one of the smallest UCs, um, it was really hard to navigate. Um, a lot of the clubs were Mexican centric, which nothing wrong with it, but it was kind of like, well, what do I identify with? Like, right. you know, and so, um, when you, this term, like person of color, women of color started coming up, it was kind of like, but am I, I'm like, I've never really thought of myself like that I was always just I'm Mara I'm Nicaragüense or I'm you know born in the United States of Nicaraguan descent right um and so it wasn't until I probably got um you know into graduate school that it became more of a discussion because obviously it's relevant right as social mm -hmm. workers we work with a lot of diverse communities and so really being aware of also the privileges that we hold even as women of color working with under privileged or marginalized groups. So um, it has been an identity shift, <laughs> you know, it's a lot easier to say now, yes, I am a woman of color. Um, however, it it was difficult because there wasn't many of us who could say that, you know, um, we were just Latinas. Right. And that has stemmed now to like Latinx and like, mm -hmm. it's just it's a lot over the years. And it's like, I think that was something for me during grad school too, where they're like, well, pronouns and, you know, like where you're from, but like, where are you really from? And I'm just mm -hmm. like, well, like there's so many different um, characteristics finding you. Um, and it's, ident it's an identity for you. Right. But it's like, that's not how we perceived it, especially coming into college and just mm -hmm. learning the ropes. Yeah. That's so interesting. Um, I guess now that you're starting your own, you're co-partnering, right, with your own um, business now, um, what's been the most fulfilling part of your journey and your career? Mm, good question. <laughs> I think it's, it, it's a culmination. I think the private practice is kind of like the cherry on the Sunday, you know. Um, I was very fortunate um, in graduate school to have mentors that helped me along the way to know that mental health was where I was needed. Um, mm -hmm. I experienced mental health um, in one of my first jobs out of college. Um, I was a case manager for pregnant teens, and this was in the early 
2000s. Um, I graduated college in 2005. And so um, if anyone's familiar, like with La Maquiladoras, right? So the border town factories. And so we had a big influx of young Latina, Latinx females coming up from the border up to where we're at, which is very agricultural. Um, and it was the first time just to experience how the system marginalized people because of A, their immigration status, B, their language, and C, their gender, right? And so um, that's what I, I kind of saw, right? Like, wow, there's no one that speaks Spanish. There's no one that's helping navigate. Um, and so that's what led me into graduate school. And then after, my thesis was cultural competency within, um, well, bilingual, bicultural social workers. Um, and so that's kind of been my foundation. Uh, I worked with a lot of agencies where I was the only bilingual therapist um, or one of the few bilingual therapists. Um, and my last position was within County Mental Health where I was um, the Hispanic Outreach and Latino Access Coordinator or, or known as OLA Coordinator. And okay. I was the liaison for the Latino community, um, helping them destigmatize and navigate the system. Um, so going into private practice, it's kind of getting all the experiences from all these um, career paths and really formulating what I feel is the best way to help my community, right? Um, right. So yes, I give therapy, but I, I am still a social worker at heart. You know, I'm always providing resources. I'm always doing grassroots things. Um, so yeah, it's Private practice has allowed me perhaps to just be a little bit more fluid or fluid in giving of myself. Right? Yeah, yeah, for sure. How was it being the one of the rare bilingual therapists? Because I feel like that's something that you don't really, I mean, I never, I haven't found a therapist that was a woman of color. And if I did, they were all full, mm -hmm. right? And like to try and find a Latina who spoke Spanish, like who knew where I was coming from, like, it is rare. So like, how was that for you? Like, no, mm -hmm. being in it. I think you're right. Right. So, um, working in nonprofits, it was kind of a little bit different, right? Um, we had a caseload and obviously anytime someone spoke Spanish, they were kind of just given to me with no consideration of whether or not, um, I understood where they came from or I understood, um, their circumstances. And so I think that's, um, Something that helped me in my career, I had a lot of great supervisors and mentors that helped me understand the privilege that I hold as an American-born Latina and the ability to go to graduate school and my immigration status. Um, and so that was really important, I think, in my growth um, as a therapist to understand that if I want to make the system better, I have to call out the system. And that's what I was doing um, for all of my career, right? So like, hey, do we have these this paperwork in Spanish? Hey, do we do this? Like, um, and it's just not Spanish, right? We have so many indigenous um, parts of our community that, um, especially where I am, which is in um, a county called Solano here in California, we have a big Mixteco and Friki community from mm. you know Mexico. And so like, they would just be like, oh, they speak Spanish. Well, Spanish might be their third language. It's not their first language. Um, and so really becoming an educator to the system um, and then really holding the system accountable. Like, well, we said we were going to provide this to our community and we haven't. Um, but you're right. I, I get a lot of calls like, um, you know, eres la primera persona que habla español. And it's heartbreaking because I can't take on everyone. Um, no. so that's where the education part comes in for me. I'm a big advocate in educating our community of the signs and symptoms of what mental health looks like and supporting them to have the conversation, to not wait for a crisis. Um, and that's for every community, but as Latinx, we, we kind of tend to, sh you know, brush it aside and like, I se va a resolver, you know? And so, um, yeah, that, that's kind of my passion in life is just to give more education. Yeah, and I think, I've, I mean, I commend you for that, and I definitely see it, even within, like, your TikTok, because that's how I found you, mm -hmm. and that's where I was like, oh, we should be having these conversations, like, this is the dialogue that should be happening within our families, or within just our community, and it's something that sometimes doesn't get, it's a boundary that doesn't get crossed, because it's a boundary we're not used to crossing, right? Um, 
so it's phenomenal honestly it's just really phenomenal that you're doing it and you're breaking those for a lot of people because honestly I feel like sometimes those posts really resonate in that sense where you don't know how to navigate certain conversations with your parents especially when they don't understand mental health and they don't understand that you know maybe there were boundaries that should have been put into place when you were younger and they weren't there right like they get lines get blurred a lot when it comes to our family and our cultures that it's been nice to have someone but um, I guess going into that too, like what has been the most challenging for you being who you are and being in the career path that you're in? Being a woman of color. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's just everything, yeah. You know, it's taken me a long time to understand how the system impacted me as a professional. Um, and mm. I think there's a lot of us that are professionals that are very much um, we um, we know the institutional racism. We know the systemic racism. We we live it and we breathe it. And so, being part of that system and expecting change was really hard, right? So you know, remember, it's not leadership, you know, things like that. You know, kind of the leadership and just like like it's going to take a long time and um and the thing is our community doesn't have time I mean I you know doing a lot of my own reflective work like growing up in California in the era of Pete Wilson of you know Prop 187 and you know how things were going to be taken away from immigrant families and you couldn't go to school if you were undocumented and all you know um the grape strikes, you know, I remember very well my mom saying, no vamos a comprar uvas, you know, things like that. All of those things have been present throughout my whole life. And it wasn't until I got into my career that it was really almost blatant, right? Like it was just like, because people I think feel that because we're in this career as people of color, that we've done all this work and that we're kind of like the champions and we carry the torch for our, all of our community. Um, but we don't because the reality is we don't live in our community 24-7 and we have to navigate two worlds, right? Um, just kind of like, you know, one of my most recent TikToks where I said, I am the system because I live it and breathe it every day. Just because I'm in private practice doesn't mean I'm not part of the system, right? And so right. that's been the challenging part is having the system recognize us as equals, not just as um, props or as boxes that they can check off and be like, oh yeah, we got a bilingual clinician. Oh yeah, we have, you know, um, a Farsi speaking clinician or you know, a Tagalog speaking clinician or lo que sea, right? Um, no, we're much more than just that, and um, it's exhausting. Um, a lot of us do leave, you know, agencies because we're burnt out, um, mm -hmm. and so it, it is a constant like okay, why am I doing this? <laughs> you know, remind yourself. And and um, sometimes it's okay to step away. Um, it's been two years since I stepped away from my agency work. And, um, you know, I'm still in touch, but it's a much more fulfilling role to be in private practice um, because I can I can see the change. Yeah, it's a lot more, it, it's more in your face than it was in the system. I feel that, yeah. I guess that honestly goes into the next question we're like how do you take care of yourself and how did you take care of yourself during all those times where you did have to constantly remind yourself why you're doing this yeah I think a lot of it is community um in my graduate school work um I was fortunate enough to intern at the county that I ended up working at and so I made a lot of connections with the therapist that I interviewed for my thesis and so Going into the system, I had a lot of mentors that, you know, were like, yeah, we've been through this, you know, um, don't let it, you know, di uh, discourage you. Um, so having support, having community, um, and I think just reminding yourself that you're there with a purpose. What is your purpose? Um, you know, it, it's taken me a long time to be authentic because I think growing up, you know, again, we were, we're brought up to be very polite. We're, you know. Um, and so sometimes people would say things or assume things and, you know, I could feel it and I'd be like, oh, this is not okay, but I wouldn't feel comfortable enough saying something. And so, um, 
taking care of myself also meant understanding who I am. Um, and so one of the things like I do in therapy with a lot of my clients is ask them, what are your four pillars? What are your four values that you stand on no matter what? Um, because that's kind of self-care, right? Your self-love, mm-hmm. your self-confidence, um, your integrity, accountability, transparency, whatever those values are is self-care because that's what keeps you going. That's what keeps you motivated. And that's what keeps you safe, honestly, you know? Um, and so that's been the big part. And also going to therapy, right? I think even as a therapist of color, going to therapy was scary because there's not a lot of us, right? We know the stigma already surrounding mental health and then finding a therapist that we can resonate with, not only for our personal issues, but our professional issues. Really understanding that we are, you know, only 5% of social workers, you know. So it's, you know, and I'm only talking about social workers. I'm not even talking about psychologists or, you know, family therapists or licensed professional counselors, um, which is probably even smaller. So, yeah. Yeah, I definitely resonate with that. I feel like even going into therapy now, she's always like trying to ground me. Like she's like, well, what do you need? And I'm like, well, I don't know. I've never been asked that question. So how Mm -hmm. am I supposed to know? Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. Yeah, I feel like therapy has just been eye-opening you know because I feel like I told my mom still haven't told my dad to this day but I'm like it's it does have a stigma to it and especially in our cultures we're like oh why are you in it and like what did I do to you and I'm like exactly I was like no mom I was like I love you and I was like it's fine but you've been able to navigate that so like I guess how do you how are you navigating this for your children now because you said they're Mm. both under five they are yes um that's actually something that's been brought up a lot in my own therapy, because as my identity has shifted, you know, and I have a partner who is not Latino. Uh, I don't either. Yeah. <laughs> you know, just really navigating that, you know, complexity and, and, you know, the familial, the familial culture is amazing. Right. And I would encourage everyone to actually look up um, Dr. Manuel in Austin. He has this amazing Institute called Chicano psychology. And, you know, I think for me, hearing other people's experience of like, well, yeah, like, um, I've reconnected with this part of my identity. um, And now my children are connected with it, right? So like, again, growing up, all the Nicaragüenses were my family. And so I came to Davis. And again, Davis is in the middle is, you know, in the middle between Sacramento and San Francisco. It's, it's cow country. And so um, I was fortunate enough to actually, um, my best friend from college, we've known each other now, you know, 20 years, um, is also Nicaragüense. Um, and she was like, yeah, there's a whole bunch of us in the mission in San Francisco. And for, and I was like, the mission? I was like, what, where? You know, because in LA, it was like nothing. You know, there was no Central Americans um, aside, you know, from a big population of Salvadorians, which was amazing. Um but really it was just my family. And so that's been part of it, of my children understanding um, the diversity that they come from, you know, um, Italian, Native American, um, Chinese, you know, all these diversities and being mindful that they get to choose how they want to identify, you know, it's not going to be imposed on them, but that there is this collective uh, experience that they come from, you know, Mm -hmm. and that they, you know, I only speak to my children in Spanish because that's important to me. Um, you know, uh, my husband speaks to them in English. Uh, but, you know, just being mindful that that they get the privilege to have two worlds. And so that not everyone gets to experience that. And so um, that's how we're passing it along. And, and it's been hard because sometimes, you know, there are things that happen that you're just kind of like, do I share this with them? Do I not share this with them? Um you know, I did a post on TikTok about a book that I read to my daughter about, you know, family separation. And it, she was only, she's only three. And she's just like, I could never imagine leaving you, mommy. Like I could never imagine leaving daddy. And so that's important, you know, the collective Mm -hmm. empathy. So yeah. 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 We'll dive more into that. But as we're talking about this and like, you know, um, almost 
identifying right as a woman of color and then having your husband that's completely different um how has that been navigating as you got older because right you're like your own person now and now you're having to share your world with someone who does come from a different cultural background so how has that been yeah (laughs) I think he was the first one to uh identify that there were no boundaries in my family (laughs) (laughs) um and I laugh because my family I call it the United Nations um so my background, my great-grandfather came from China and immigrated to Nicaragua. So he was one of the first settlers of like, you know, China town in Nicaragua. Um, and so, yeah, so Chinese, we have Egyptian uncles, Italian uncles, Mexican tias, you know, German-American tias. Um, and so it was kind of interesting, right? Cause you can, you can see the progression, right? Like, mm-hmm. um, you know, my grandfather was very progressive and, you know, and then, you know, as we, it kind of was like, well, grandpa was too progressive. Let's kind of tone it down a little bit. And, you know, um, but I think being the oldest too, and I've seen a lot of TikToks and Instagram posts of like, tell me you're the oldest daughter without telling me you're the oldest daughter. Right. And it's like, you became a therapist or you became, you know, um, all these things. And the reality is um, he helped me a lot to navigate and understand like you can be your own person and still be part of this, you know, amazing family. Um, you know, and the other thing is it's, you know, distance. That's the biggest mm-hmm. boundary, right? Like all, most of, all of my family is in Southern California and I'm here in Northern California. So, um, you know, it's not as easy anymore to just like, hey, you know, vamos a tener una fiesta on Saturday. And it's like, well, you know, it takes me like 10 hours to, get down there it's not going to happen right like you know so my family too has been um they've had to make a transition you know where um, I was always available physically um and now I'm not um and it's he's been able to kind of reinforce that like hey like you know it's okay that we're missing this like we'll be down there another time or um even when we got married, which our anniversary was yesterday. Um, oh, congratulations. Thank you. Like, I was like, I'm going to go get married in the same church that I got baptized, my first communion. Like, it's, it's going to happen because, you know, um, my family outnumbers you 10 to 1. Like, that, that, you know. And he was like, stop. Where do you live? Where's your life? Where have you created this? And I was like, here. And he's like, well, then we should share our life with them. And and so it happened. Like, they all came up. <laughs> it happened. But it was, the, it was kind of things like that where, you know, putting it into perspective that it's like, you don't have to rush to fulfill this need anymore. Like, you're your own person and, and it's okay. And, and so, yeah, he's he's been good at that. Um, you know, we clash as like any other partners do because, you know, I, you know, we're Ricky Ricardo and Lucy, you know, but, um, but at the same time, like, he's been one of the biggest supporters of, like, especially where we live, right? Um, Mm -hmm. Just my, my wife speaks Spanish to our children. Like, he's very much like, you know, very, this is who my children are. My children are bilingual. Um, And that's been nice because growing up, that's not something we had, you know, we were shush, you know, like, don't say anything. Um, so he, he's, he's an amazing partner, an amazing supporter. Um, and he's, he's also holds me accountable, which is what we need in partners. (laughs) It definitely is. I totally agree with that. How was it then, um, navigating your career field with him, right? Because I mean, you are a therapist, right? And now you have your own business. So like, how was that whole, whole partnership when (laughs) you were creating your own partnership with someone else? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm fortunate enough that he himself is a business owner. And so I think he understood the importance of, you know, building something from for yourself. But he was also the first one to say, leave. This is a very toxic environment. You're not happy. Um, you don't need to be there to, to help your community. Um, and so if it wasn't for him, I don't think I would have left as you know, as soon as I did, you know, um, there was a big thing about, you know, retirement, obviously, you know, county government job, things like that. So, 
but we also had two kids within that span that I was in my career at, at a government job. Uh, but as soon as, you know, um, this pandemic started, he was like, that's it. Like, look how successful you are. Cause we haven't stopped, you know? And I think if you ask most therapists, we haven't stopped, you know, yes, we're working from home, but we're still, we're probably getting more referrals than we have. And so, yeah, yeah. so, you know, for him, he's like, do what you need to do. You know, um, he's very much like, this is important to you. This is what fulfills you. But also reminding me, like, you, you chose this because it is also work-life balance. So, you know, I only work Tuesday and Thursdays, um, through Thursday, I mean, three days a week. Um, and so we make time for each other and we make time for a family, something that wasn't, able, we weren't able to do otherwise because it was like, oh, well, I don't have enough vacation time or I don't have this or I don't have that, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so it, it's also kind of, you know, interesting because our cultures, he's Italian American, you know, work hard, you know, and then you can retire and we're definitely shifting into like, no, we need to enjoy it now. We have children. Um, let's do what we can to create a foundation where we do show work-life balance for them. Like they don't have to wait till they graduate college to find work-life balance. No, I love that. I feel like that was the same in the conversation that I was having with my padrino this weekend where he was just like, we were navigating like us potentially, you know, looking for a house and like figuring out our next job and, and career path. And one thing that I said, I was like, you know, it's, it's nice having a work-life balance. And I was like, it's, it's much needed. Right. And I think that's something that we're discovering a lot right now. And he was just like, that's a dream. He was like, we come in from Mexico and he was like, we come as immigrants. And he was like, for our children to hopefully have that. And I was like, yeah, I was like, I think that is, is they give up so much of their time for us. Right. And they gave up so much to just provide and support that that was missed a little bit in our childhoods. And now it's, you want to, my phone's about to fall. Um, you want to prevent that for the next generation. Mm-hmm. So it's beautiful that you're doing it for them. Yeah. I mean, like I said in my last post, I mean, my mom worked a lot. You know, my mom's a single mom. <clears throat> and so it was, it, it, you know, um, there were no family vacations. Um, the one time I only went to Nicaragua was when I was six. That was the only major family vacation we took. Um other than that, I was sent to a Theo or Tia's house for the summer because my mom had to work and there was no childcare. Um, and at the time when you're little, you're like, yeah, you get to spend time with your primos and you're like, you know, it's fun and things like that. And it was, I have amazing memories, but it is, it is something that we don't talk about in our culture, um, that the emotional needs are just as important as, you know, everything else, you know, mm-hmm. and um, I know our parents don't do it intentionally, right? There is, there is no, like, I don't want to be with, you know, Diana, or I don't want to be with Mara. Mara, yeah. You know, it, it's more of like, you know, like you said, this, this, I want to do better for my kids. Well, doing better also means being transparent with your kids and being able to let them know, you know, I'm not, I've always told parents, like, you know, you don't have to tell them every darkest secret, but you have to include them in some life decisions because they are part of your life. So like moving or like, you know, hey, you know, uh, we're going to have to rent out a room or things like that. Like you're taking away the ability for them to have an opinion, which is later down the line, very um, impactful because when we get into these careers, we're shunned, right? Or we're told and we're reminded, well, we can't speak up, right? You know, we can't say these things. And so creating a space where we can have these dialogues early on is important. You know, um, you know, my daughter will hold me accountable. Mommy, you promised this. And I'm like, oh my gosh, you're right. You know, like, and, and yeah, sometimes it, you know, it triggers you because you're like, well, my mom never did that. Like my mom, I could have told my mom, like, no me llevas this and they'd be like, well, you know, <laughs> and, but now it, yeah. you know, it, it's more of just, how can we shift the mindset of like um, I'm older and better versus younger and, you know, unwise, I guess, you know, so. Yeah. I feel like you bring up a very valid point in the sense that like, it's something that I've been trying to just understand a bit more. Um, I think you're a little frozen. 
um, where, you know, I'm navigating potentially becoming a mom, right? And part of that is that inkling of like, you know, like, is this going to be something that I'm going to, it's going to trigger me in the sense like, well, mom, never, my mom never did that. Or like, why is she acting this way? When like, you know, like there are certain experiences that I think you almost, you wanted and you desired as a child and now you're giving them to your child. So how do you, how do you balance that mm -hmm. out? You know? Mm -hmm. Um, so how has that been for you? Lots of therapy. <laughs> I mean, I think, um, it, <laughs> oh, <great. laughs> you know, Leslie, um, who is the founder of Latinx parenting and I encourage everyone to visit her, um, her platform, her website, and she has great training. One of them, which is, I think, happening soon called Remothering. You know, like, how do you fill that void that you had by fulfilling it within yourself? You know, um, there's a lot of talk about inner child work, you know, and there's a lot of talk about, you know, kind of um, helping that young child that was kind of sheltered or abandoned uh, within yourself. And it's true, you know, um, it's not anything new. Um, you know, uh, I think I'm one of those therapists that I'm just like, I meet people where they're at and sometimes people are like, well, yeah, I, you know, exactly what you said, I'm going to be a mom or, you know, mis hijos no me hacen caso or things like that. And so, um, well, how did you feel when your parents didn't listen to you? How did you mm -hmm. feel when your parents didn't give you space to feel your emotions and told you to, you know, te me callas? Um, so instead of, you know, thinking, well, my kid is, um, pay is a payback for what I did to my parents, thinking, well, how can I give my children what I wasn't given in a way that also fulfills me, right? Mm -hmm. That also allows me to be present for my children, because ultimately that's what we wanted, right? We wanted our parents to be present. We wanted mm -hmm. our parents to honor our experience. Um, and again, like, you know, I've said in some of my TikToks, it's about empathy. You know, it's about understanding that our parents also, you know, are coming to terms with their own existence as parents and now grandparents. And, you know, a lot of remorse is coming up and that's okay, you know? Um, and so for me, it was a lot of like, okay, Mara, like, why, why is, you know, my four-year-old, you know, triggering me? Well, you know, A, we look exactly alike. So it's like, I'm looking at myself throwing a temper tantrum. So I'm like, this is how my mom felt, right? But, yeah. you know, um, so yeah, just, just I think giving ourselves space to go and explore that, you know? Mm -hmm. And it's scary because it also means sometimes we have to um, acknowledge that our parents did fail us. And that's a big feeling to acknowledge. <laughs> it is, it is. Yeah. It, and it is also something to consider that if you can acknowledge it for yourself, it's for you. It's not for your parents. It's not for your partner. It's for you. And it's okay. Your parents may never know how you felt and that's okay. Um, you know, and, and it's more about how do you kind of, what I tell parent or, you know, people that are in therapy with me is like, how can we bring them to the present? How can we bring your young child into the present? Mm -hmm. um, you know, your younger self where they feel safe with you now, you know? Um, and some people are like, I don't know how to start. And, you know, a lot of times I'm like, you know, do something that you like to do when you were little, you know, um, and or you have times where there's no expectations. Um, so, yeah, there's a lot, I think, happening now, especially in Latinx psychology, that there's a lot of talk about remothering, a lot of talk about, in, you know, um, inner child relationship and healing, but also I think just collective experiences. Like there's a lot mm -hmm. of us that experience this and, and it's nice to find community. Completely, completely. And I feel like um, it's something that we thought we had to do alone majority of the time too, right? Like we're very, we're very, very, we're individuals that tend to write whole things in. So that means you shouldn't allow other people to see your feelings and that thus, right? There's no community, there's no collectiveness. So I think one thing I'm honestly grateful for for the Gen Zers is like they're shifting a lot of these things for us, right? Where the bound there are no boundaries, and that's great in that sense that boundaries are being opened that probably wouldn't have happened if it wasn't for a new generation. Um, and that kind of goes into my next question of you and 
you know, being on TikTok and the platform, like, how has that been for you? Like, you know, you have your own little audience now. So how has that been as a, not only just as a, you know, a social worker and now like your own, um, your own professional and your own um, business, but also just navigating in your late thirties, you know? It's, I think, well, I was born in 83. So I'm of that zenial stage, right? Where it's like, I grew up, you know, learning a lot of technology. So it's not something I fear um, in that sense. However, there was this apprehension of like, am I good enough to be on this platform, right? Because I think like Facebook and Instagram are kind of like family oriented, you know, like, oh, I'm just on there because my family can see my kids or whatever. You know, this TikTok was, and I still see it as, it's the gateway to the world, right? Like you get to impact so many people um, or potentially impact so many people that for me, again, one of my pillars is education, you know? and communication, and I think transparency. Um, So obviously, I'm not going to share everything on this platform, but I do think it's a way for me to hold myself accountable and also hold other people accountable that are in this field. Um, Because there's a lot of misconceptions of what therapists do and don't do, or what social workers do and don't do, or, you know, however. Um, and, And let's just call it what it is, you know, there's not a lot of BIPOC creators, um, that are taken seriously, but as soon as um, a non-BIPOC creator says the same thing that as a BIPOC creator says, it blows up. And so, mm-hmm. um, you know, I think for me, it's just been like, okay, can I can I just put information out there? If it reaches who it needs to reach, great. Um, but now I'm getting more comfortable with calling things out that are not okay. Um, I've seen that. Yeah, because, you know, I think, like I said, I live and breathe this every day. You know, I have clients of all privileges and all walks of life, um, but I'm very, very much in tune with my undocumented immigrant community because that's mm-hmm. who I I want to be connected with. And so when things like that come up and there's no voice or people are just taken advantage of because there's systemic and institutional racism, you know, I think TikTok is giving me a little bit more of that confidence to say what I need to say, <laughs> you know, um, whereas before we couldn't, you know, or if I said it, it would just be like, oh, I va mara de nuevo, you know, um, yeah. and it'd be like, yeah, I'm saying the same thing I said 20, you know, other meetings because things don't change, you know, right. and so for me, it's more of like, you know what, if you're not going to listen to me, then you're going to listen to probably the community if they start holding you accountable, you know, if they start complaining enough, if they start asking for changes. Um, I also think, you know, TikTok, you know, allows for community. There's a lot of us who are BIPOC creators that are um, therapists that, you know, lean on each other, you know, and um, seek out support and, you know, are like, hey, have you experienced this? Um, Because there's, like you said, there's not many of us, um, you know, I can tell you all, mostly all the therapists that are in my county, like we're great colleagues, right? But I wouldn't want to go to them for maybe a therapeutic relationship, right? And so being able to find other um, creators or other people that can be like, hey, I know someone, you know, like my therapist is in Riverside, you know, like, <laughs> like I'm never going to run into her, you know, uh, uh, so, or she'll never, you know, it, it's just one of those things. Um so yeah, TikTok, I think is, um, I'm happy for TikTok in the way that it's expanded. And I hope that it continues to to be a platform where people can, can honestly be authentic. Yeah, I think so too. I think kind of going into that too, were there any, any feelings maybe of imposter syndrome going into TikTok? Oh yeah, definitely. Um, I think it, you know, my husband was on TikTok first. <laughs> And my husband went like viral and I was like, Por qué? like, how, like what happened? Right. Like, porque, you know, I was like here doing my little like, you know, therapy things and nothing was, you know, um, <laughs> going viral. I guess. Um, and I was like, hmm. Um, but I think it's also like the imposter syndrome, I think is, is really something that I struggled with just because, um, you know, as a woman of color, as someone who has experienced their own mental illness, 
um, and works on their mental health, um, you know, sitting with this, like, well, am I good enough? You know, and so, <clears throat> you know, I've always said, just because I have four letters behind my name and I have a license and I'm credentialed and all, it doesn't make me any different than anyone else. I just have more resources and more education that I can give other people. Um, but there are these things where, you know, we learn differently or we explain things differently. And I'm a doer. Um, I love to get my hands dirty. I'm very much like, I have, I can give books, recommendations and all that, but I, I need to live it. I need to experience it. And so um, I think that's also where this platform has allowed me to be a little bit more of who I am in therapy. Like the, what you see in TikTok is basically how I am in therapy. Um, you know, uh, I think we have great models in therapy, you know, EMDR, CBT. Um, but the reason Dr. Manuel resonates with me so much is because we are a, a storytelling community. Um, and sometimes we just need to tell our stories. And so that and TikTok and seeing all these amazing creators cite all this wonderful information, I'm like, oh no, I don't, I don't, that's not what I do, right? Like, I don't know. <laughs> so the imposter syndrome would come in about like, well, do I need to be citing things? Do I need to be, but you know, kind of like, but I know what I'm talking about. Like, and, right. and so, um, so yeah, so that I think is just kind of the reinforcement of a system where it's like, well, where did you read it? Who told you that? You know, um, what theory does that come from? And I'm like, I don't know the theory of Mara and lived experience. Like, it's <laughs> good enough for me. And I feel like sometimes that's not enough for people, especially when it comes to social media sometimes. But I mean, were there any feelings of those imposter syndrome starting your own business? two years ago too yeah um so my co-partners are amazing women themselves um and we were um you know women of color and non-women of color who started this business and you know I think we had to really tease those things out at the very beginning to be able to say like you know we are creating this business but we all have our um own niches you know mm -hmm. um, and so how can we collectively support each other but also be mindful of that and so there was a lot of discussion of that like you know well I don't expect this from my clients well we'll have to you'll we'll expect that like bringing children to therapy right like right. Um, you know um oh well we can't have kids waiting in our you know lobby um well we may have to consider we need to get a playroom or something because, you know, I'm going to have moms that might have three or four kids and no daycare. And I don't want that to be a deterrent, you know, for therapy. Mm -hmm. um, and so it was a lot of discussion of like, well, what are we expecting? How do we want to execute it? Um, and now with, you know, telehealth, it's been a lot easier, but when we were in the office, it was, it was, you know, do we have this in a bilingual post? Are you being mindful that we have to, that we have bilingual bicultural um, participants coming through our door? Um, and again, my colleagues are very much aware, but when we're, we were all in the same system, we all were in county mental health, where those things were provided to you, right? Mm -hmm. As a non-bilingual clinician, um, you could just go and maybe say, hey, this this person doesn't speak, you know, whatever language, and someone right. else would take care of it. Whereas for me as a bilingual clinician, I didn't have that luxury, right? Unless it was someone of non-Spanish speaking, right? But even when it was a person of color that didn't speak Spanish, they would give it to someone who was BIPOC, right? Because they'd be like, oh, well, at least you're both brown, or at least you- There's could, a connection. Right. And, and so that was a lot of that within- creating this business is like, well, I am a woman of color. I am bilingual. I, you know, and I want our space to reflect that. Um, and so right before COVID, unfortunately, that's what's something we were doing. We were going to be more intentional. Um, but obviously now we're not, but, um, but yeah, it was, it was a big, big um, stepping stone for all of us to be able to put it out there and be like, um, yeah, I have never experienced yeah so yeah it's it's a lot <laughs> you're doing it though um 
I know it's cutting into the hours soon. So I'm going to ask the last question I tend to ask everyone. So if um, future Mara va a escuchar esto in like five years, what would you say to her? Mm. You did it, girl. You accomplished the dream that you wanted, which was to be in private practice. And that you found the work-life balance that was necessary because it just was needed. And also, you know, uh, you continue to grow. I think that's the other thing is, you know, um, knowing that growth is important and growth is what keeps us alive. Um, and also, you may stumble and you may fall, but you have community, which is something that you've created, you know, that there, that you've chosen this community. Um, so, yeah, hopefully she's, you know, enjoying, you know, a Mai Tai or something on a beach somewhere. <laughs> I mean, hey, the kids will be a lot older by then too, so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I am, I am a firm believer in um, putting it out there because actually, right, you know, I'll leave you with this. Actually, I just had my daughter and I went to this like, you know, um, workshop on like women's intuition and the facilitators, a great psychologist out here. And, you know, she did this exercise, exactly what you just asked, what do you want to tell yourself in five years? And she had us write it down and I put it in my wallet and I never thought about it again. And then, um, sure enough, like when we started this business, I was like looking through my wallet and I was like, oh, wow, like everything I put out there came true, you know, like I want to have my own business. I want to have interns. I want to, you know, and maybe it's not exactly what it is, but the fact that I, that it's happening, I think is also part of that, you know, American dream that our parents want for us, right? That like, Absolutely. Um, you know, my mom may not understand still what I do to this day, but I live on. My mom's just like, I don't know, it's just like a computer. I'm like, yeah, mom, that's all I do. I'm just on the computer, but sure. <laughs> I know, my mom's actually with my kids right now, and she's like, tu mamá va a ir a hablar con alguien. <laughs> But again, no same, but she's just talking to someone. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, that that in five years, hopefully my mom will have better understanding as well. <laughs> I, I, I think so too. That's amazing. But no, honestly, thank you for your time. Um, it's been right. beautiful chatting with you and I, I look forward to seeing more of you on TikTok. Yeah, of course. And I'm always available. I think my, you know, what I tell people is my tagline is, estoy a tu disposición, because um, that's, that's how we are in this culture. So, muchísimas gracias. No, thank you. And you have a beautiful day. You too. Take care. All right. Bye. Bye. I hope that you have enjoyed this episode and stay tuned in the next following weeks for the next one. Talk to you later.